So this is where we left off at verse 6 last time of chapter 5. We'll pick it up at verse 7. And keep in mind to remind you that Paul here, after his first imprisonment, is writing to Timothy, who has been placed as the overseer of the church of Ephesus. He is working with the leaders there. It is a challenging ministry that this young pastor has been called to do. And you recall that Paul, as he's writing to Timothy in this letter, in chapter 3, he writes that, I, I write these things to you, Timothy, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So Father, we do pray this morning that as we study your word once again, that we wouldn't have the mindset of, well, widows and elders, this doesn't have anything to do with me. It does. Lord, we want to not only look at the implication, but application for our lives as we are elders in our homes, as we are taking care of others, as we're ministering to others. Lord, we want to be established in truth, speak to our hearts. May we be a people that are teachable. Uh, soft hearts before you, ears open to you in what you say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. And I really hope and pray that those of you who have been with us in our study here at Calvary through this epistle, that you've been blessed and benefited by going through this letter because it's important for us to know what godly leadership looks like as we looked at the qualifications and the characteristics of the overseer and the deacon and, and, and also what the priorities are to be in the corporate meaning of believers because we know that culture is affecting church so much that it seems like more and more that churches are allowing culture to influence them rather than the word of God. And keep in mind that Paul's inspired by the spirit of God to write these truths down so we can benefit and be blessed by it. And of course, as he is writing to the, the, the church here, Timothy, here are the priorities in the corporate meaning of believers. That chapter two, men ought to always be praying, lifting up holy hands. And here's the role of men and women in the corporate meaning of believers. And we've seen that there is, and we'll continue to see, an emphasis on teaching doctrine. That, Timothy, I charge you to teach no other doctrine. Because there are those who are coming in that they're teaching myths and they're teaching fables. Uh, they're being legalistic. They have no implications or ideas of what it is that they're teaching. Timothy, you must continue in sound doctrine. you got to wage the good warfare because it's a spiritual battle that is out there. And as we saw in chapter 4, that it is Paul that says, Let's strive together. Let's labor together to exercise godliness. And Timothy, this is how you do that. You give yourself entirely to doctrine, to reading, to exhortation. Meditate on these things. Uh, don't neglect the gift that is in you. Uh, you're to stir up, he tells them in 2 Timothy, that gift. And, and, and you are to be one that you, as you continue in sound doctrine, as you continue in the word of God, as you continue to be an example to the believer, that is going to be evident to the congregation and a blessing to them. You give them truth. You are a good minister if you get them grounded in the truth of God's word because in the latter times, Timothy, that there are going to be those who are going to depart from the faith. And they're going to give themselves over to doctrines of demons and, and deceiving spirits. And of course, we're seeing that even today. 
So Paul, as he continues now to instruct Timothy, as we moved into chapter 5 last time, uh, Timothy, this is how you're to treat one another in the church, in the body of Christ. Now, I'll read it to you again as we opened up chapter 5. That do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. So he uses those terms, a father and mother and brother and sister, and, and Paul's reminding us, and we need to be reminded again, once again, at this point in our study, that Calvary Chapel here, we are a family. We are a family, and we are to treat one another uh, in a way that a family is to treat each other with respect. This is to be a place where you are blessed and benefited as, as we are exhorted, as we're prayed for and encouraged and helped in every way. This is a place where you're to be loved, and this is to be a hospital. We're to be hospitable to one another, as we see in the New Testament. And in that word hospitable is the word hospital. This is a place where people can come that are hurting. And that's why we desire to, to emphasize to you, continue to be in the house of God, to be in fellowship, to, to be a part of the family of God, because there is tremendous blessing and benefit in that. And one of the things also that I especially kind of emphasize is young men, how it is you treat the young ladies here, that you are to see them as a sister in the Lord, and you are to treat them with all purity. And and I know that it was a challenge. It was very direct. But when it comes to godliness and exercising godliness, which we are to do, that includes our relationship with others. So I hope that you received it as an important exhortation, uh, even though it convicts and it challenges us. And then Paul, as we moved through chapter 5 up to verse 6, he began to talk about this whole area of widows and, and how to support them and minister to them. And we're going to pick up with that. But then at the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about Timothy's relationship to the elders. First of all, the compensa uh, compensation for the elder, second of all, an accusation towards an elder, and then thirdly, the ordination of an elder. So we ended at verse 6 with Paul talking about the responsibility of the church to take care of widows. Remember back in this time that when uh, a woman who is married would lose her husband, if she didn't have any children to take care of her, and Paul reminds the Christians that you do have family responsibilities in verse 4. He's going to say that again in verse 16, that you are to take care of the widows, your family. You have family obligations, but there was no uh, pensions. There was no social security. Security. There is no uh, any kind of life insurance that they could receive. So they were in trouble if they lost any support from their husband. They didn't have any children to take care of them or family. Then the responsibility would be given to the church. So Paul's given guidelines because there are those who would try to take advantage of the church. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But you do have family responsibilities. And as we pick it up here in verse 7, not only towards the widows, but as uh, to the family as a whole. We do read in verse 7 that these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So again, Timothy is told, teach these things, Timothy, so the people will know what God expects from them. 
And then in verse 8, Paul emphasizes the responsibility of a man to provide for his family. Don't just expect the church to take care of your family. And just as he's given guidelines for the widow so the church isn't taken advantage of and those who will try to do that, it's the same with what was taking place with with those generally that were expecting the church to take care of their family. Now, it doesn't mean that the church can't help those families that have need. Of course we can. Perhaps somebody loses their job and they're, look, you know, they're looking for work, but they need some help in some areas. But ultimately, what the Bible makes it clear that men are those of us who are the head of the house, that we're to provide for our families. And there was a problem in the early church of those, again, trying to take you know, advantage of the church. And we see that Paul writes about it to the church at Thessalonica. Matter of fact, he writes in 2 Thessalonians. And by the way, I was reading where 2 Thessalonians is the least read book in all of the New Testament. And it may be because chapter one, it's only three chapters long, 2 Thessalonians. Chapter one deals with persecution. Chapter two deals with the day of the Lord. And then chapter three deals with those who are busybodies, those who are expecting the church to take care of them. They would not work. And so Paul addresses them. Uh, he addressed those who, not that they couldn't work, but they would not work. And they were idle. And there are busybodies. He's going to use that term here. And what does that mean, a busybody? Somebody who's idle, somebody who refuses to work, expects the church to take care of them, is gossiping and meddling in everybody's business. So here, as he addresses it, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, I'll read it to you. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. I do like what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says that this is what you're to do. You're to work with your hands, lead a quiet life, and mind your own business. I like that. That's good advice and good wisdom, godly wisdom for all of us. But apparently there were those in the church that, again, that they, not that they couldn't work, but they were being lazy and they wouldn't work and they were expecting the church to take care of all their needs. And he says, listen, you don't work, you don't eat. So you need to work. And the church was always there to help those who really had need. And here Paul writes something very sobering in verse 8, that if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now why would Paul say that? Because unbelievers will even provide for their own families. But there's something else that I want to say here about this verse. As we talk about men providing for their families, and I know there's different cases. I know there may be health reasons, you know, and infirmities that uh, men are going through. It may be that you're a single parent, whatever the case may be. But I want to talk about those of you who are the head of your house, that I want to give you the spiritual application for this. Because I don't think that Paul's just talking about getting your family a new car and a new boat. And if you don't do that, then you're not providing for them. There is a difference between providing needs and wants. 
But the priority for any of us that are the head of our homes, that are ministering to those in our homes, and, and for you mom and dads, for you men particularly, that listen, don't expect the church to be the only one that fosters your, your family, your kids spiritually. We have the wonderful privilege, and we do see it as a privilege, and the responsibility and the blessing to come along and minister to your children. That's why we work very hard in the children's ministry, the volunteers. They take it very seriously that they're in a safe environment, that they're hearing the word of God at their level, to the youth, to get them grounded in the word of God, to minister to them. We see it as a privilege to serve your family and to serve these kids that are here. And we pray for them. And we pray for those ministries. And we love partnering with you to minister to your children, to your grandchildren. But you are to also be the primary one that is ministering to them the things of God. And you are to take that very seriously as well. To teach them the word, to talk to them about the things of the Lord. And, and so I know there's different circumstances. There are those that perhaps are bringing their grandchildren because in their home, you know, they're not getting the things of the Lord and being taught the things of the Lord on a regular basis. So you have opportunity to bring your grandchildren. Or maybe you have children that brings a friend that is in an unbelieving house or some other circumstance that has taken place. And we are going to be the primary ones along with you to minister to them, you know, in the spiritual matters in their lives. But you parents that are here, listen, you have the primary responsibility to minister and to provide for your family spiritually. And men, you have been ordained to do that. And you're not to be passive about it. To minister to your wife and children on a daily basis. And Paul would write to this same Ephesian church a couple years before this, the husbands, you love your wives as Christ loves the church. And fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And you see, I believe that parents, you can be the ones that are the most effective in ministering the things of God to your children daily. You are the ones that are washing your kids. Husbands, wash your wife with the water of the word. You be examples to them, just as we're told to be examples in chapter 4, in word, in conduct, in love, in behavior, in, in purity, in faith, that, that you talk to them. Get your kids grounded in sound doctrine because here's the thing that we've learned, especially going through this epistle. If they are not grounded in sound doctrine, if you're not grounded in sound doctrine, if you're not grounded in truth, you're going to face a lie. And there's a lot of lies out there. And there's a lot of weirdness that is out there. And you want your kids to be grounded in truth, to talk to them about sin, to teach your kids not to make excuses for sin or to compromise with sin. But as they walk in the ways of the Lord, they will have a blessed life. They will experience that abundant life that the Lord desires for them to experience and to have as they're surrendered to him and to know this and to reiterate to them that God has a plan for you and he loves you and he wants to do what is best in your life. To pray for your kids, pray for them, pray with them continually, constantly, daily. 
And the reason that I'm parking on this a little bit is because we can give them everything materially. We can give them their own phone, their own computer, have a nice room, get them involved in all kinds of activities and things, get money so they can go to the movies with their friends, nothing wrong with that, money so they can buy clothes, but neglect the spiritual and what God has called us to do in raising our children in the ways of the Lord. We don't deal with their hearts, with the heart issues. And I know that raising kids these days, it is extremely tough because there's an enemy out there that desires to destroy them. And there's a lot of pulls on them and influences. And parents, you have the opportunity to be the primary influence in pointing them to the Lord. And you might be here. I know there have been those who have passed through the services this morning. And you might be thinking, well, my kids are grown. Uh, We did our best in raising them in the ways of the Lord, but they've walked away from the Lord. Or you might be thinking, you know, I just got saved and I didn't know to do that when they were in the home, when they were small. Maybe you don't have the opportunity to minister to your kids because relationships have been strained or severed or there's been separation, whatever the case might be. Maybe that you're here, oh, I'd love to minister to my kids, to my grandkids, but they don't want to hear about Jesus. We don't want to hear about the Bible. And you want to be a witness to them. So for you who are in that situation, listen, I want to encourage you. There's something that you can do and there's something that all of us can do and should do. You keep praying. You pray for them. You pray for the prodigal. And remember in Luke's narrative, in that story that Jesus told the prodigal, that the father saw the son coming down the road. How did he know? I think that the father went to the edge of the road every single day and was looking. He was looking for his son to come home. And you keep praying, looking for your child to come home to the Lord. That you pray that those relationships will be restored and renewed. That they'll come to Christ. That you'll be able to minister to them. Don't stop praying. And being that influence in prayer. And then as the door is opened up, as restoration begins to happen, as the Lord gives you opportunity. But don't stop praying. We need to continue to do that. And now he shifts to talking back to widows in verse 9. But not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Well, report it for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, So again, he's given guidelines because there would be those who would try to take advantage of the church. And so they were to receive assistance, the widows, and help. Paul gives qualifications, guidelines for the widow to receive from the church. There seems to be a minimum age. She must be over 60 years of age. The wife of one man, kind of the idea as we saw in the requirements of leadership. She was faithful to her husband and she washes 
you know, the feet of the, you know, the servants. She's a faithful servant to the Lord, a godly reputation, continuing in verse 11, but refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cut off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, build, uh, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. In verse 15, for some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. So once again, he reiterates the responsibility that family has to the widows. If you have that, those of family that belong to you, they are to take care of the widows. Many of you are doing that, taking care of elderly parents and, and, and caring for them and loving them. And that's honorable before the Lord. And then also, as he gives these qualifications, as we finish this section on widows, don't think that Paul's just being hard or coming against young widows. The younger widows are not to be added to the support role of the church. And here's what we think what was happening in Ephesus in the early church. When a widow was put on the church role, it seems like she would... Uh, pledge or vow to serve the church. They were serving and praying and probably counseling the younger women, helping in very practical ways. They were available and given over to serving the Lord wholeheartedly. And one of the reasons that you don't put the younger women on the list to be provided for, I think verse 12 is the key, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith or it means solemn promise. Listen, there's wisdom in that. In that, Paul is saying that in their desire, being young, to have companionship and to remarry, they would bring condemnation on themselves for making that promise that I'm going to devote myself wholeheartedly to serving in the church and serving the Lord. So Paul doesn't want to do that to them. We don't want them to go through this self-condemnation if they remarry. Oh, did I do wrong in remarrying? Should I remain single? Did I sin against God in all of this? So Paul encourages the younger widow to remarry so they don't have a more difficult time resisting the temptations that come with idleness. And then Paul, in the next six verses, Paul gives some guidelines and standards when it comes to the elder. First of all, he talks about the compensation of the elder, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those uh, who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So those who have the position of an elder, which we talked about in chapter 3, those who oversee ministry, the pastor who's given to the study and teaching of the word of God, the elder is to rule well, verse 17. Now, that word rule is the same word used in chapter 3 concerning the overseer who's to rule his own household. He is to rule also well in the ministry of overseeing the flock of God. Now, that word rule does not mean with a heavy hand. It does not mean to master or to lord over people's lives. 
Matter of fact, Paul, when he was writing his second letter that we have recorded in the New Testament to the Corinthians, he would address them about those who had come in, and we've talked about this before, that they were super apostles. That's what they claimed to be, most eminent apostles and teachers. And they were ruling over the people with a heavy hand. He even addressed them and said to them, they, they you know, punch you in the face and you put up with it. That's ruling with a heavy hand, literally. And, and Paul says, listen, they're not most eminent apostles. They're false apostles and teachers. They're ministers of Satan is what they are. But as Paul's talking about his ministry to them, he says to them that, you know, um, that the more I love you guys, the less I am loved by you. And he says, we're not here to rule over you, the master over your lives, to be helpers of your joy is what we are desiring to do. We also know that John in 3 John, in that little epistle, that he writes about a man named Diotrephus. He says, Diotrephus, be careful. He loves to have preeminence uh, over people. He talks nonsense about us, using malicious words. Uh, he doesn't receive the brethren. He's kicking people out of the church. When Peter was writing about the elder, I'll, I'll read it to you in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, he says in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 3. You can note it, but as I read it to you, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. So here, back to our text, Peter's saying the same thing that Paul is saying through the inspired word of God, that you're to be an example, Timothy, we saw in chapter 4, and, and you are to be one, not given to dishonest gain. So as it says that the elder is to be given double honor, it doesn't mean that he's entitled to dishonest gain. It doesn't mean he gets double salary. What it means is that uh, that word honor is the same word used uh, when children are told in the scriptures to honor their parents. It means respect. The pastor, the elder that has devoted himself to the study of doctrine, the teaching of the word should be respected. And if the church is able to provide for him and his family, then in verse 18 that we read, that he quotes from, first of all, he quotes Luke 10, the words of Jesus, that a worker is worthy of their wages. And then from Deuteronomy chapter 25, that you don't muzzle the ox as it treads the grain. Now, I don't mind being likened to an ox, okay? Because that's the way it feels sometimes. Just plowing, plodding, treading, over the years, keep teaching the Word of God, going through the books of the Bible. And I encourage and I exhort young pastors, you just keep plowing, keep treading, keep true to the Word of God. Don't give in to all the, the you know, trendy things that are in the church to try to entertain people or hype people up or whatever. You keep true to the Word of God. Keep laboring in the Word and in doctrine. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Timothy, you be a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But I do want to say this. I am so thankful to you who support the church financially. 
that I am thankful that I can be here to study God's word, to be in prayer, to make it a priority in my life, to allow me to be here so I can prepare and minister to you and the other pastors as well. Thank you so much. And there are some pastors that I know that are effective and great teachers that they have to make tents. In other words, they have to have a job and pastor their church because the church isn't big enough to support them or financially able to do that or the church needs to grow more. They just started a church. And, and when we first started Calvary Chapel, we weren't supported. We had to wait till the church grew and was able to support and, and do that with us. So I'm very grateful. And I appreciate those who make tents that are faithful to their flock. I know some guys that have been doing it for years and years and years. There were times that Paul made tents when he was in Corinth. He talks about that. We took nothing from you guys. We weren't peddling the word of God. We're giving you freely the gospel and serving you. There are other times that he was supported financially. And when he was writing to the Philippian believers in that epistle, one of the reasons he wrote to them is because he was thanking them for the support that he received from them. And he would write in chapter 4, verse 17, that not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Listen, for those of you who give to this church, that I'm able to be here to teach the word of God, for us to be able to do ministry, we do take the finances very seriously. But the fruit that comes from this ministry, people are getting saved. People are rededicating themselves to the Lord. People are growing in the word of God. We hear so often that I'm growing for the very first time. I've gone to church for years, but it was a church that just... The word of God wasn't, you know, a priority. We have people that are coming that are hurting. We have people that are coming here that families are being restored. Marriages are being healed. We see that we're able to reach so many, not only here in this congregation, but through the radio program, as I do Calvary Live, it goes nationwide now. So much fruit that is coming, and the fruit that abounds, it abounds to your account, your spiritual account, as you support the ministry here. You're going to be rewarded greatly for that. So Paul, writing about compensation, now he talks about the accusation against a elder, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So Paul here, the reason he's writing this is... He knows that being an elder, being an overseer, that you're going to be a target. And there will be those that will come against you. So he's given guidelines here to, to separate, to be wise um, from false accusation and, and then valid accusations. There must be witnesses for an elder to receive an accusation. We see this is a principle from God for anyone, really. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, if a brother has sinned, you go to him privately. You don't go to Facebook. You don't go to, you know, and gossip to your friends or try to gather a posse around you. You go to them privately and you address it. And if that doesn't work, they refuse to hear you or repent, then you bring a witness. You bring two or three witnesses. And then you go to the church. That's the proper order. So the Bible uses this order in, in, to the elder as well. 
And then in verse 20, if there's a valid accusation, those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. So if it is established that an elder is sinning and there's no repentance, then he is to be rebuked in the front of, there's a debate, whether it's the other elders or the church as a whole. But in other words, you're to deal with it, Timothy. I charge you, verse 21, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Timothy, I know that these issues are very tough to deal with, but you are to follow through with these instructions. You're to show no partiality. And if there is sin that disqualifies them from you know, being an elder in the church, you're going to have to deal with it. We've had to do that in 24 years of ministry once. And I pray that we never have to do it again. And that whole idea of restoration and, and discipline is for restoration. Remember that. It's not for revenge. It's not to destroy somebody's life or, or their family. It is to be done in tenderness. It is to be done in love. We know that Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, restore such a one who's been overtaken in a trespass. Restore such a one in a spirit of meekness and gentleness. But it is to be done. And this whole idea of restoration, particularly, and I want to address this because I get asked a lot on this. I get calls from others. Then an elder that has to be stepped down or is dismissed from his ministry because of sin issue, moral issue, adultery, whatever. Uh, the church is all over the place on this. There are some churches that just sweep it under the rug. And we're not going to deal with it. We're just going to turn our backs on it. There are others that go to the other extreme that, you know what, we're, we're going to really deal with this guy, be so harsh, and, and we're going to crucify this guy. And we're going to bring his family up here and rebuke them all in all of this. In this area of restoration, there has to be courage, there has to be caution, and there has to be fairness, and there has to be discernment. And when it comes particularly to one, when it comes to a sin issue that disqualifies him out of the ministry, there has to be, particularly when it comes to adultery or anything like that, I've seen churches where they want to restore the pastor after a couple weeks. And the people are saying, how can you make him step down? He's so wonderful. Look what he's done. There needs to be a restoring process. And it takes time. There has to be, first of all, restoration with God. How is it that your relationship and your closeness was so far from God that you weren't hearing the conviction of the Holy Spirit? You weren't responding to it. So there has to be restoration with God, first of all, that closeness, that intimacy, that surrender. Second of all, there has to be restoration with his wife and with his family, if that is possible. That takes time. And then thirdly, restoration with the congregation, if that is possible. So yes, we desire restoration, but it has to be done in a godly, biblical manner, in a wise manner. Timothy, you're going to have to follow through with these instructions. You show no partiality. And do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. 
Don't be too quick to put others in the ministry. Let them prove themselves. As we saw in chapter 3, the qualification of an elder is not a novice. They're not a new believer. Let them grow. Let them go through the test of time. Don't get involved in other sin. Guard your own conduct, and you do what is right. And no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Water was bad back then. So Timothy obviously has some stomach problems from drinking the water. And Paul, who had said in chapter 3, an elder is not given to wine. He makes an exception. Use a little wine for your stomach, for medicinal purposes. And then as we finish this morning, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those who are otherwise cannot be hidden. What is being said here in the context of elders is this, that, that, that some men, their, their sins are, are evident and, and preceding them to judgment. You look at them, there may be potential, but you see that there's things going on in their life and, and you don't have to put them in as an elder. But there are those that some you may ordain as an elder and the problems, the heart issues eventually come out and they come out later. Because not everyone who's ordained as an elder ends up working out. So Timothy, got to be careful. Think about this. But also think about this as well. And I want to encourage you as we're going to close here. The good works of some are clearly evident. And those who are otherwise cannot be hidden. And as we close today, maybe you are taking care of your children in the ways of the Lord. Maybe you got loads and loads of laundry, ladies. For those little ones that you're doing for, but you're caring for them and you're loving them. The Lord sees that. Maybe you're taking care of elderly parents. Maybe you're ministering to to family members, others, in a very unique and special way. God has placed you that only you can do it. And you think nobody sees it. Does anybody care? Yes, God sees it. And he cares. And he's going to reward you for those good works. And I want to close with this. You be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that your labor, your labor for the Lord is not in vain. It is not in vain. Keep doing it. Keep doing what's pleasing uh, to the Lord and, and as you serve him, as you serve others. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this word given to us and this study. And it does apply to us, Lord. Uh, it applies so much, the implication here. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to exercise godliness, to move forward, to be an example to others in word and conduct and in love and purity and in faith, to treat one another with respect, encouraging one another here in the family of God, to remember our responsibilities to our family, to provide for them spiritually. And Lord, help us and guide us in the difficult circumstances that we may face. I pray for the parent that's praying for the prodigal. Lord, bring them home. Bring them home to you. Our relationships have been severed and strained. Restore those relationships. Lord, I pray... for those who perhaps don't have the ability to minister to their kids or grandkids. You would work. And Lord, you love them. 
And Father, that as we care for others, we would do it out of love of Christ. Father, I also pray for anyone who is here, maybe listening on, on live stream, perhaps is um, going to listen on the radio later, that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and that he is your salvation. There is none other. The greatest need of any man or any woman is to be forgiven of sin. The first words of Jesus in his ministry was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means to turn direction, quit going the direction you're going, turn to Jesus who loves you so much that he went to a cross to die for you, for your sins, because our sins have separated us from God. The wages of sin is death. And as Jesus hung on that cross for you because he loves you, all of your sins were placed upon him. And then he cried out, it is finished. I've done the work, I've paid the price. So come, ask for forgiveness. Realize he made atonement for your sins. Surrender to him, know he's alive. He rose from the grave. He validated what he did on the cross. He's the only one that did that, no one else did. He's the only one that conquered sin and death proven he's the son of God and he is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through him and the invitation is always to come it's always to come and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved will you do that today is the day of salvation and you can pray sincerely in your heart right where you are that Jesus I come to you and I confess that I am a sinner in need of the Savior, that's you. Forgive me. And you are also Lord of Lords because you rose from the grave. Forgive me of my sins. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. I thank you for saving me, for dying for me, bringing me into the family of God. This is my gospel. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. And listen, anybody here, if you prayed that prayer, as we have a prayer team up front here, we're going to close in just a minute. Come up and receive prayer. Tell them the decision that you made. Or if you're listening on live or on the radio, call the church. Let us know that you made a decision for Christ. But for all of us, Lord, help us to exercise loving godliness to others. Give us wisdom and discernment because we face circumstances that can be difficult and hard and we need your direction to hear your voice. So Lord, I thank you that we're here today. Bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.